Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Welcome to the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about mental health care and the BIPOC community. Real quick, we'd like to acknowledge that we're wrapping up Transgender Awareness Week and highlight that November 20th is Transgender Day of Remembrance. My name is Libba Vanapool. My pronouns are she, they, and I am the volunteer coordinator and community engagement coordinator at the Victim Service Center. With me today, I have Natasha Ganesh DeArcangelo. Natasha uses she, her pronouns and is a licensed mental health counselor in Florida, Oregon, and Washington, a Florida qualified supervisor, a nationally certified counselor, a certified clinical trauma professional, and a certified compassion fatigue professional. She works with adolescents and adults in her role as a staff therapist for Headspace Health. She operates from a cultural humility perspective and is an ally of the LGBTQIA community. She's especially passionate about working with clients who are struggling with trauma and anxiety and does public speaking on the topic of burnout. I also have Mary Figueroa. Mary uses she, her pronouns, is currently pursuing an MA in clinical mental health counseling with a certificate in family and relationship therapy. She's a therapy intern at VSC and serves local counseling associations in Florida as a student liaison for the mental health counselors of Central Florida a marketing coordinator for the Central Florida Association for Family and Marriage Therapy. She's trained as a clinical trauma professional, has completed training in mindfulness stress reduction techniques, and most recently started EMDR training. She believes that every individual holds a capacity for resilience and that those personal strengths are already within and strives to create a compassionate, non-judgmental space that honors diverse and intersecting identities and allows for a collaborative alliance. As a brief introduction, Previously on this podcast, we presented a four-part mini podcasting series focusing on issues affecting Black and African-American communities and ways we can advocate for Black survivors of trauma and sexual violence. The mini-series covered topics like mental health within Black communities, anti-racism and therapy, racial trauma and Black survivors, and implicit bias. Today, we'll be taking a step back and discussing client and counselor representation, how lack of access can impact BIPOC individuals seeking mental health care, how stigmas can play a role in that, and advice on how to find a therapist. With that, Natasha, Mary, thank you so, so much again for being here with us today. Hello, thank you so much for having us. Yes, and for that lovely introduction. (laughs) Um, So, you know, before we get started, Natasha, I know you mentioned wanting to take a moment and address our identities. 
Yeah, so I always like to start by addressing our intersectional identities. And so for myself, as you already mentioned, I use she, her pronouns. So I identify as female. I'm cishet. I am first-generation American, so I'm the proud child of immigrant parents. Shout out to Guyana. I am able-bodied. I am neurotypical. And I live on land that was traditionally owned by the Seminole people. So those are my intersectional identities. And I am Mary, she, her, hers, ella, pronouns. Um, since gender woman, I am a Latinx or Latina woman. I was born in Colombia, raised there for about 10 years, um, well, actually eight years, then moved down to South Florida. I am, my, my race is always a thing. Like I'm white, not a person of color, but as a Latinx or, you know, Hispanic woman is always a thing that I'm battling back and forth about, and also able-bodied. Um, and my name is Libba. I am, uh, I use she, they pronouns. I am non-binary. I am white. I am able-bodied. Uh, and I am neurotypical. So to get us started, can you take a couple minutes to talk about what client representation looks like and adding on to that, you know, what counselor representation looks like? Sure. So I will say that client representation really varies. I actually want to start this by by addressing the counselor representation first, because I think that gets into the client representation. The American Counseling Association put out a statistic earlier this year uh, during Multicultural Awareness Month. And the statistic is that only about 30% of licensed professional counselors across the United States identify under the BIPOC umbrella. Um, so BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And that's a that's a pretty stark statistic, right? So it's not representative of the populations that we have living in the country. And there's so many, I mean, we'll get into act, uh, access of care, but one of them is if you are looking for a counselor that looks like you, there's only 30% of us that are licensed practicing across the country. And so that's something that can greatly impact client representation. I don't necessarily want to go to a clinician that's not going to understand me and my personal experience because they don't look like me. Maybe they don't share that same cultural background. I know for folks that identify under the LGBTQ plus umbrella, that's also an additional barrier right? I work with transgender folks. However, I do not have lived experience of what it is like to be inside a body um, where my gender assigned at birth does not align with what I truly am. And so that's an additional barrier for folks and can really get in the way of, well, what's the point? Why would I bother going to talk to somebody when they're not going to get it? And so I think as a profession, we really need to be encouraging folks um, who are part of marginalized day, um, identities to get into this field. We need more mm -hmm. counselors uh, of color. We need more counselors that are the, under the LGBTQ umbrella. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I wanted to add something to that. Mm -hmm. And what comes to mind is that being a counselor, I mean, so far, right, I'm still a graduate student. It is extremely rewarding for so many reasons. And it's expensive to be a counselor. 
I think of myself in, in my internship year, I'm obviously in my internship working almost a full-time job for free. There's a lot of people who aren't able to make that work. Mm -hmm. And also counseling is a very expensive field to be in. The CEUs, the licensure, the expensive grad programs. I, I, I can just think of all the many things that encompass this reason of, you know, I, I really don't think that it's a lack of people of color or just minority identity, people wanting to be a counselor is just the access. It's not a very accessible field. Yeah. You know, to speak to what Natasha was just talking about, about how the lack of representation in the counseling field feeding into the lack of representation and clients who are trying to seek counselors that align with their identity. Uh, and then going beyond that or adding on to that rather the lack of accessibility coming in with like finances and mm. expenses that come with being trained in this field, being educated in this field, and just the cost of education in general, mm -hmm. you know, which kind of brings us to, you know, uh, how it's important to highlight how access to care impacts whether someone seeks out that care. So can you expand a little bit on how lack of access to care relates to BIPOC individuals not seeking mental health care? Yeah, so I, I think a big one is uh, when you think about health insurance in this country, it's, it is a nightmare to try to navigate getting access to medical care in the United mm -hmm. States if you are uninsured or underinsured. Florida is one of those states where we do not have expanded access to Medicaid, right? So yeah. you have to fall into a very particular category to even qualify for health care and to get basic things taken care of, like, uh, you know, I think I have the flu and I need to go see a doctor. And so when, when you can't even access that care, you're not going to be able to access mental health care. It feels like an impossible task. You know, so many clinicians are not even billing under Medicaid. Um, typically, you have to go to a community mental health center in order to be able to find a clinician that's in contract with Medicaid. From the therapist's point of view, there's just so much red tape to become a provider. And then there's billing and, you know, a lot of things on the back end of it, right? Um, I think there's also stigma with accessing care, particularly in BIPOC communities. There's a lot of keep it in the family. We don't talk to people about our problems. And so there can be shame and stigma associated with that added on to, I'm not even going to go to a person who looks like me in order to be able to talk about this stuff and just kind of lay everything out to a complete stranger. If you do have commercial health insurance, you log on to your health insurance site. I mean, I've been there before and I'm looking for a provider. I type in my zip code and it comes up with 300 names. <laughs> well, where do I go? I don't know anything mm -hmm. about any of these people. And think about it. If you're seeking mental health care, maybe you're feeling depressed or maybe you're feeling anxious. You now type into, I don't know, let's say Cigna, the Cigna website. And it's like, here are 300 clinicians in your area and you're already overwhelmed. Now you're staring at a list of 300 people. You don't know where to start. And then there's the frustration of, okay, well, I'm going to call five people 
How many of those therapists are going to return your phone calls? How many of them are currently accepting new clients? And it just, you give up before you even get started, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's very, very multi-layered barriers to, to accessing care. I'm interested to hear what you have to say on that, Mary. Yeah, no, absolutely. I second everything you said. Um, And then one thing that's also coming to mind is not only like people that look like us, but also like the language barriers of things. Oh, yeah. Um, And, and, you know, I'm lucky to be at at a community mental health site that has done a lot of work in making sure that we formulate our our forms in Spanish, that we translate, that's the word, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we translate our forms in Spanish and all the things. But that is also a barrier, finding people that can speak the language, that can explain to you the information in a way where it's understandable, digestible, if you will. And like you said, you're you're done before you've even started. Yeah. And, and it's already something that takes a lot of courage to be willing to do. Sometimes it's the first time in, in their life that they've seen someone go to counseling. And, and it's just a lot of barriers. In addition to the cultural presentation of symptoms, sometimes just some of the ways in which, you know, maybe like I'm thinking of language again, in, in Spanish, we often say like ataque de panicos, mm-hmm. and that translates literally to panic attacks, but maybe it might be different. So just just some of the stigmas really around around the language and, and all of that of, of different people in different communities. And then also with commercial insurance, oftentimes you'll have a deductible, right? Mm-hmm. And so you may even have to pay um, $500 out of pocket before your health insurance even kicks in. And if you're struggling to make rent and put food on the table, you literally don't have $500 to to be go seeing somebody. Or maybe your copay is $50 a session. Well, if you're choosing between a $50 copay to see a therapist and putting gas in your car so you can get to work tomorrow, Mm -hmm. that's another barrier. And oftentimes, even if you have a copay, there's like restricted sessions that you can even attend unless you have like a persistent mental illness as well so it's like let's say that they can meet they could they do all these things they make the phone call got a phone call back all this they can meet you know the copay they can only attend therapy maybe like twice a month right right Um, so so, limited number of sessions they're allowed absolutely Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's really interesting just to hear you both talk about how like this interplay right of like stigma within certain cultures of seeking out mental health care, but then also a system that is not designed to be friendly or accessible financially and how, um, like how this can almost like, right. Like we're experiencing inflation in this, in this moment in time. Sure. So everything is far more expensive. So speaking to what you were just talking about, Natasha, in terms of like, it is hard to prioritize, especially if you're already overwhelmed by, like you said, popping up 300 searches, not knowing where to start. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to prioritize and make that uh, decision to spend $50, you know, on a copay versus yeah. like you're saying, you know, put gas in your car, go to the grocery store, take mm-hmm. care of like annual things um, in general. Like if you need to go to the doctor, going all the way back to what you're talking about in terms of you know, medical needs. And then people think mental health needs are, you know, a secondary on top of that. It's almost a luxury. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And it shouldn't be that way. No, not at all. (laughs) 
you know, in addition to lack of access, implicit bias from the person providing direct care can also be a barrier in someone continuing, you know, with their healing, right? So they get to this point where they're finally in a session, maybe. Would you be able to speak to uh, some stigmas from a counselor um, and how that may clash with different cultures? Sure. So implicit bias is those things that we do unconsciously um, that show that there is some level of misunderstanding that we have with other cultures. I encourage everybody listening to take the uh, Harvard has uh, an implicit bias test. It's free. Mm -hmm. You can do it online. It's great for gaining some insight because you may think that you don't have implicit bias, but we all do. Every single one of us does. And you can't start turning that around until you're actually confronting what's going going on inside of you with some level of honesty. So that that's a uh, resource I would definitely throw out there is the Harvard implicit bias test. But again, that comes up as another barrier, right? So if I'm talking to a counselor, uh, you know, let's say I've done my research, they seem like a good fit. And, you know, then they, they say something about my culture, you know, and they're making assumptions. For example, I present as Indian. Most folks, when they look at me, will assume that I am from India, Um, However, my family is from Guyana in South America. Now, several generations back, yes, we did come from India, but I do not claim India as my cultural heritage. I claim my West Indian descent, you know, like that, that's my cultural heritage. That's the music that I listen to. That is the food that I eat. And so if I walk into a counselor's office and they say something to me like, oh, I love Indian food. And, you know, my best friend got married and I got to wear a sari for the wedding. They may think that they're trying to establish you know, some rapport with me. Um, and, and neither one of those things are necessarily mean to say. However, mm-hmm. I'm immediately going to be off put. You didn't ask me where I was from. You assumed that I was Indian. Um, mm-hmm. And then you started kind of essentially showing off what you might know about my culture, having not even established where I'm from. And I'm honestly, I'm not going to want to continue talking to you for, for the intake, much less for continued therapy. And so I, you know, in my bio as Libba Red, I try to operate from a cultural humility perspective. So there's this concept in the, uh, in the field, you'll see some people say cultural competency, and some people say cultural humility. Cultural competency means that First of all, I don't think it's something that you can ever achieve. Um, and it it's kind of assuming that because you read something in a textbook or maybe you went to a grad program and you learned about how to work with, I don't know, let's say I'll, I'll just do a broad umbrella, like Asian clients, right? Like, oh my goodness, are we talking Cambodian? Are we talking Indonesian? Are we talking Chinese? Are we talking Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani? Those are all different. How can you be competent in those cultures? My argument would be that you cannot. And so instead, I try to operate from a cultural humility perspective, which is you are the expert on your culture. I will never know as much about your culture as you do. And I want that to play a role in therapy because it's important to you. 
But I'm not going to assume that because I read a book somewhere or I read an article somewhere that I know as much as you do about your culture. Because even if I have a client who is first generation Guyanese American, they may have a very different experience of what that means for them than my lived experience. And so my client's lived experience needs to be the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking of this, like it's on a micro level and then on a macro level as well. The micro level is that using that cultural humility, um, which involves understanding the complexity of identities, even if we're similar, similar backgrounds, there's still a lot of differences. And, and, you know, I like to think that we're alike in more ways than we are different, but Mm -hmm. still those differences are important to understand, to honor, to celebrate and and understand that we are not going to know all the differences to, so to come from the lens of we are not the experts everyone is their expert in their own life and we don't know all things so having that openness that curiosity that non-judgment one thing that comes to mind with this is that is a book called the racial healing handbook it was passed down to us by a professor at Rollins and it's by Annalise Singh or Sign. Annalise Singh. She's she's at Tulane University. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's amazing and it's super effective. Um, I, I think it's a great resource. It's super effective in in helping you challenge yourself, explore yourself as a cultural being, um, where you are in that cultural identity um, scale, and 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 it could really be healing in some ways. Maybe in other ways, it could really challenge you and bring out some other feelings, but. I found it to be very healing. Um, so that's on the micro level, like from a counselor, individual perspective. And then there's also that macro level. It becomes a little bit difficult because our theories in counseling, I mean, they're sort of whitewashed. <laughs> they're founded in this, you know, ethnocentric point of view made by white, mostly male, heterosexual male men and for white people. So we really have to be aware of these and and it might bring some shame, but kind of check our shame and understand that it's just part of like what the counseling field has been and, and be open again with that curiosity and non-judgment to, to be more culturally affirming and bring more culturally affirming approaches. I mean, one thing that comes to mind when I think about all of this is, for example, like in Latino communities, here in America, I've noticed that it's kind of like the rule at 18, you kind of go to college, you leave your home. Well, in Latino communities, specifically my family too, I've seen that some people never leave their home. They're mm-hmm. always with their parents. And and you sort of have as a cultural tradition, this multifamily homes. Well, here in the US, sometimes we can see that as codependency or that, that t- term enmeshment. Um, and, and a way that we combat this in counseling is to kind of want the clients to establish boundaries and to differentiate. And I mean, I'm not saying differentiation is not great. We obviously want people to have a sense of identity, to have that personal agency and understand their values. And we also have to understand that there are some people that are coming in that might be from these collectivistic cultures and their boundaries might look way different than what we and our our theories in the de- definition of them might say. So really it's understanding yourself from that micro level and then also from a macro level in the counseling agency. How are we doing the things? How are we conceptualizing clients? 
you know, how are we using their language? Are we being personable? You know, some people, they might come into my office and, and if they're cursing with their friends, then you can curse if you're expressed. <laughs> it's a form of expression. Yeah. You know, I, I want you to feel like you can express yourself in any way and not have to like change yourself because you're with me and we have to talk like this. And how are you feeling? <laughs> no, like, you know, if you want to come in here and say whatever, I mean, I don't know if I can curse in here, but <laughs> um, so, so really just allowing space for them to be themselves. So understanding the ask counselors, you know, how, how are we making space for that? That's fantastic points, Mary. Can I also add another great resource is anti-racist psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, that's written by David Archer uh, on confronting systemic racism and healing racial trauma. And is that a resource you would say is for um, like direct? That would be providers? more for clinicians. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. I think the healing handbook could be for everyone, right? Like I I yeah. mean, it was obviously presented to us in the multicultural counseling class, but I think it could be for everyone. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you guys addressed, oh my gosh, I feel like we just like ran a marathon. <laughs> we it was really like truly hitting, you know, the the micro and the macro level going all the way back, Natasha, with what you were saying about, and Mary, what you were also addressing, you know, cultures are by no means a monolith. Um, mm, right. Like you're saying the lived personal experience of the client, even if there is like an alignment and identity doesn't mean that you're going to understand everything that they've been through or their perspective. And also making note right about when there isn't cultural humility present, right? When there's no effort in that area made, how jarring it can be for a yeah. client during an intake who's there to be in a safe space, Absolutely. having an assumption made about their identity um, mm -hmm. and immediately being off put or like, you know, even a, a microaggression in those mm -hmm. instances um, mm -hmm. and how that going right, tying it back in, how that impacts individuals seeking, seeking care and staying with care. Um, yeah, and I think I want to add one thing to that too. You know, when we're talking about doing this work, man, I sometimes see this with like Latino counselors and I'm talking about Latin culture, because truthfully, that's my culture. And that's what I can kind of speak of from sure. a personal perspective. But um, sometimes when we're talking about doing this anti-racist work, some people can feel like they're omitted from that. Mm. And and I really would like to encourage everyone. Um, yes, white counselors and also people of minority ethnicities and identities. And um, because we can all have this internalized, you know, blank and I think it's important for everyone to kind of be doing the work. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think another couple of things too, for everybody to keep in mind is just in general, um, is when you're having conversations with people, try not to make assumptions. And so in, in my professional life, but also in my personal life, when I'm meeting somebody new for the first time, I don't ask them if they have a husband or wife. Mm -hmm. I ask them if they have a partner or right. are you are you in a romantic relationship? Um, yeah. Because you don't want to make assumptions. Uh, you know, imagine that you're talking to somebody who's gay and you've now asked them, you know, about their wife, right? Like it just immediately mm -hmm. puts this pit in their stomach. And now they got to do this game of do they want to out themselves to you? And is that comfortable right. and all of that, right? And so when I introduce myself to a client for the first time, I mean, I have it on my Zoom profile. And so if you have not already, I would encourage you on your Zoom profile, on your LinkedIn profile, on your business cards, on your email signature, anywhere where you have your name, add your pronouns. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, for um, sure. It's it's a it's a way to let people know that you're thinking about it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a way to open up a conversation, and you know, um, especially in my clinical work, I introduce myself as "Hi, I'm Natasha. I use she her pronouns. What pronouns do you use, mm-hmm. or what are your pronouns?" And then I try to not gender people, um, like try not to make assumptions. <laughs> you know, we have all of these stereotypes about what feminine presenting looks like and, and what masculine presenting looks like. And those are your assumptions. That's your stuff. Don't, don't, don't put your stuff on other people. And so even if somebody mm-hmm. appears to be more, let's say feminine presenting, I try I try really hard to not use she, her pronouns because that's an assumption that I'm making. And so if I'm out at a restaurant or, you know, um, somebody's left something behind at a grocery store, I can say, hey, person, other human, um, I think you left your umbrella behind, right? And, and even things like that, if you get into the habit of doing that, it just becomes easier and it's just a more welcoming environment Mm -hmm. for everybody. And it's such an easy, it doesn't take anything from you. And it's such Mm -hmm. an easy thing to help make the folks around you comfortable. You know, I definitely can like affirm that in terms of like having like she, they pronouns, right. A lot of folks, when they see me, um, they, a lot of the time will gender me with having like she, her pronouns. Mm -hmm. So when I'm speaking with someone or when I'm in a professional setting, having that uh, either individual provide their pronouns and ask me for mine is like this, it it sets me at ease a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a space where I can safely present my identity and write in return, just as you were saying, practicing that. And I think to add on to that as well, um, for anyone who is practicing Um, maybe their friend or a loved one um, has new pronouns, you know, Mm -hmm. and you mess up, know that uh, it is as simple as saying, excuse me, she or her, or he or him or they or them, or whatever pronouns they utilize, and then just carrying on. So I, I, I appreciate you highlighting that. I think it carries us really well into something that we spoke about at one point, active allies, you know, and uh, what can therapists and advocates do to be active allies in this field? So Natasha spoke a little bit about um, the stigmas that are associated to people specifically in BIPOC communities. And, and I think there's just so many, so many of them. There's that, that first generation American kids, you know, sometimes they, they know the the trauma that their parents have had in their born countries and sometimes they might feel like their their struggles their needs are not valid compared to their parents they might not want to seek that help and also by seeking help and services they might be bringing shame to the family name the labels that come from society that are attached to people receiving mental health services we have the distrust of the medical care in black communities so there's all these stigmas and i think Cultural humility definitely is a big part about this, about how we can target these stigmas. Um, I really like to emphasize that it's not that we're trying to change the stigma. We we are trying to give some psychoeducation and also just validating it. 
really validating, you know, that that it's understandable why the, there is a distrust in the medical care um, in Black communities. Mm-hmm. You know, we we know we have information about this. You know, the Tuskegee. Tus- yeah, the, the experiments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and even with COVID, like that was a thing. And it's another layer of information that we have on how Black communities are often getting the worst of it when it comes to the medical care. So, so I think it's just learning about them, validating them, recognizing the strengths and really highlighting the resilience that it takes for someone in a BIPOC community or just in a minority identity to get into the office. So just even show up, like showing up is the participation. And if not, not labeling them as a challenging client or the challenging student or the challenging person that like I said before, they may be the only person in their family that has ever taken the step to even research anything that has to do with mental health. And I think a big thing, and for me, I I really always like to remind myself of this because sometimes even as a Latina working with Latin clients, I can say like, oh, you know, we know each other, but broaching the topics that maybe I'm dealing with a person of Latin descent of another different country than I am, you know, they're maybe they're a Me- they're Mexican and I'm Colombian and that's different. So really broaching the topic and, and bringing out the elephant in the room, like, hey, how do you feel about being a queer Black woman with a Hispanic, Latina, white? How is that going to come up in our relationship? What is that going to look like for us? Is, you know, really bringing up these topics, finding out a little bit more about what is it like for them? And I think on a more macro level, <laughs> asking yourself, what do you do? And besides the work that you may be doing to change in the counseling room, what are you doing to combat this mental health stigma? In which ways are you advocating? Are you attending seminars hosted by BIPOC individuals that are about BIPOC communities? I mean, not that it, there's anything wrong attending a BIPOC seminar with someone who's not part of the community. But, you know, making sure that you're really advocating, that you're making yourself accessible to the community. I saw a TikTok today and it was like, if all your clients are white, then you're doing something wrong. So, hey, (laughs) I'm going to pass that along. Find the TikTok. (laughs) Yeah. Natasha, do you have anything to add with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that as a field, we have the responsibility to do our own work. And so if you are not actively trying to make the system better, then you are not doing right by your clients. It's what, in what, the ACA laws. It is. It's it's part that Mary's referring to the American Counseling Association. Um, we are governed by their code of ethics. And part mm. of the code of ethics is that as counselors, there is a responsibility for us to be working at a larger level to advocate on behalf of our clients. And so, you know, as Mary stated, I mean, beautifully, some of that work can and absolutely should be done in the counseling room. And some of that work needs to be done outside of the counseling room as well. What does that look like for you? How are you actively participating in dismantling systemic racism? Or, I mean, here in Florida, we have had so much anti-LGBTQ legislation passed and just the last year comes to mind. What are you doing to actively, as a counselor using that platform, make 
this world a safer place for those clients. That's part of your responsibility as well. One thing that I try to do is every so often I will get emails about participating in research studies. Mm -hmm. So there are folks in dissertation mode right now who need people to participate in research studies. And that's another way to continue to build the body of knowledge, especially if you are part of a marginalized community. Um, There's just not enough research done. I actually saw a post on LinkedIn earlier today for Transgender Awareness Week that they're trying to conduct the largest ever study of transgender folks. There's just not large numbers out there. I mean, the Trevor Project does a great job of putting out an Mm. annual study every year. That's typically what I go to um, when I'm looking for statistics, but you should be educating yourself on this stuff. Earlier this week, a colleague of mine posted about a book I'd not heard about, and it is titled white women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better Mm. and read the book right? (laughs) Challenge some of those beliefs that you have, you're not going to get to a better place and really be an ally unless you're facing down your own stuff and really having honest conversations about yourself, right? Or with yourself Mm -hmm. um, and breaking down some of those barriers. So yeah, that absolutely comes down to the micro and macro level. Mm -hmm. Every time somebody mentions anything about Florida with all of that, it just makes me want to do a big like, ugh, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I thank you for, for sharing on that and for providing these resources. Mm-hmm. I have never heard, I haven't heard of, oh, I've heard of the Harvard implicit bias test, but you know, yeah. the rest of these books, these handbooks I haven't heard of, and I'm glad we're able to, to mention them and bring them up. I think it would be great to take some time and talk about how someone can identify Uh, if they may need to go to therapy, and how to initiate that process. So um, if you are alive on the planet right now, you need to go to therapy. (laughs) 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 That is the answer to the first question. (laughs) Yes. Um, I mean, COVID has just been brutal. Every single statistic Mm -hmm. that has come out in the wake of COVID has proven time and time again that collectively, I mean, and this is worldwide, this is not just in the United States, our mental health is suffering. People Mm -hmm. are more anxious, people are more depressed, and statistically, Black and brown folks are more depressed when we compare those numbers to their white counterparts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you are alive on the planet right now, you need to be in therapy. Um, Some of the biggest signals that I look out for though, are your body lets you know when there's something going on. And so it's like when the, the oil change light comes on in your dashboard, it's your car telling you like, Hey, if something's going on here, you need to pay attention to it. Your body does that too. If you pay attention to what your body's telling you. Um, Typically one of the first things that will happen is you'll notice a change in your sleeping habits. Sometimes people will stop sleeping, they have insomnia, maybe you're laying in bed, it's taking you two hours to fall asleep, or you find that you're falling asleep, but then you wake up in a couple hours and then it takes you another hour to fall back asleep. You're just waking up exhausted. Mm -hmm. That's a big sign that there's something going on. Changes in appetite. If you, I have a lot of clients describe to me that 
they are so anxious that it feels like they can't eat. <laughs> There's just this mm-hmm. knot in their stomach. And that's especially concerning if you have unintentionally lost weight as a result. Mm-hmm. So that's another big one. Changes in concentration, you know, especially with, with anxiety, it's, you may have 500 million thoughts going through your head. And so you forgot to pick up the milk and bread on the way home, or you're constantly losing your keys or, or that kind of thing. So those are the big ones. Sometimes you're hearing it from people around you. Hey, you haven't returned any of my text messages in a week, or we were supposed to get together for dinner last week. You never showed. I never heard from you. Are you okay? What's going on? So sometimes it's the people around you that are noticing things. A lot of times mm-hmm. people will describe it to me as I just don't feel like myself. And if you don't feel like yourself, it's okay to go get help. And think about the conversations you're having with friends too. If you were talking to a friend and your friend said to you, um, you know, I had a really intense workout yesterday at the gym. And ever since then, my foot has been killing me. It's all bruised and I can't put any weight on it. You wouldn't tell your friend, you know what? It's probably all in your head. I'm sure you'll be fine. Just get over Mm -hmm. it. You wouldn't talk to your friend like that. And so Think about the conversations you're having with your friend. If somebody opens up to you and says, you know, I just, I haven't been feeling like myself. I've been feeling really depressed or I've been feeling really anxious. That's a great opportunity for you to open up that conversation and say to them, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. How can I support? Do we need to go get dinner somewhere? Can I help you find a therapist? Can I get you connected to help somehow? Maybe we can find a support group. If you normalize those conversations, if collectively as a species, we normalize those conversations, we can really work on destigmatizing, you know, mental health care. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And even as a counselor, like I like to be open about how I'm also in therapy mm-hmm. and, you know, the times that we, my partner and I have been in couples therapy, like I, I, I want to really personally mm-hmm. normalize that for people. Like even I, I, as a clinician myself, we also were people, we're humans too. We have feelings too. We have challenges and transitions and um, we're also doing the work. And And one thing that I think about is that sometimes and you did beautiful about explaining some of the symptoms that that people can look out for. And also sometimes it could look like that functional anxiety where like someone's like doing all the things and like all the things are getting done and you're just like really involved. And like, you you think that maybe someone who is experiencing mental, mental health issues is someone who's like laying in bed all the time and like not able to have motivation and all that. But it could also be the extreme opposite of that. You could just be on the go all the time and and maybe asking yourself, like, is this the way that I'm coping by keeping myself busy, by overscheduling myself? So, so really being honest with yourself about what are your behaviors? Why are they happening? And sometimes it's hard because again, that cultural tradition of being self-reliance. I mean, we live in a very individualistic society where we just want to do all the things and we want to do them alone. But there are people who literally's job is to be there and to support and to listen. And I think that you have these resources and, and utilizing them. I kind of wanted to bring back what Natasha was talking about 
towards the beginning too about how let's say you recognize you're not sleeping as much or let's say you recognize or someone points out to you like hey you've been going at work nonstop you haven't been taking moments to rest to relax so let's say you know someone gets to that point where they finally uh, you know resolve within themselves like okay i need to find a therapist i need to i need to seek help for this i need to address the check engine light and then as natasha pointed out way earlier they go online they say how do i find a therapist <laughs> they type that in and they get like over 300 results what's a way that they can how, how do they find a therapist you know without getting overwhelmed in that process great question and i would start with therapy den so it's the word therapy t h e r a p y den d e n therapyden.com you can type in your zip code and then you can type in do you want somebody that's in person or online you can type in what insurance you have. You can type in that you want a transgender therapist or that you want a black therapist. And it will come up with options that are in your zip code or in your state if you select that you wanted to see somebody remote. Um, so that's a really nice way to narrow things down. I really like Therapy Den as a resource. Psychology Today is another resource. I think it's a little bit harder. Their search engine is a little bit harder in my opinion, but that's another option is psychology today. And then I'm also going to send out as a link to be attached to this recording. Uh, the American Counseling Association released a directory earlier this year as part of Multicultural Counseling Awareness Month. And they have it broken down by I'm looking for a Jewish therapist, or I'm looking for an Asian therapist, or I'm looking for a black therapist. Um, awesome. And it's all together mm -hmm. in one site. Yeah, I love that because there is a lot of online directories. Like I saw yes. um, an article about like 15 of them, but I like the part of breaking them down and making it easier. I also mm -hmm. want to add to that, that finding a therapist it may be very challenging because even when you're in the office, you're building the therapeutic relationship, you just might find that you are not clicking with them. And just like in any other relationship, right? Like an OBGYN, a doctor, an eye doctor, or a hair person, or, you know, a <laughs> nail person. I'm looking for an eyebrow person right now. Um, <laughs> so it, it's just that type of relationship where you may try it out and you may find that this is just not the right fit and it's not anything that you did or anything that they did it's just not the right fit the counseling style is not what, what you're looking for and that's okay too so just being open to the process open to um, maybe letting them know and, and giving some feedback and and also open to maybe the first time that you try it it might not be for you but it doesn't mean that it's not going to work for you. It just means that maybe someone else might be a better fit and, and being open to that process as well. And I, I like to kind of tell this to all my clients because I've learned this through my own work again. In every single therapy, therapeutic relationship that I had, I always learned something about myself. Even if it was just one thing, there's always just at least one thing that I took away. So even if it's just one thing that you're learning, take that one thing and maybe find someone else that might work for you better. 
Yeah, Mary, Mm -hmm. I wanted to touch on something that you brought up, which plays into, you know, how someone right when they go in and they look for they utilize these resources, they find this list of therapists, and they see things like, you know, that you have training in mindfulness, stress reduction techniques that you have, you know, training or you're certified in EMDR, um, or they see maybe this like alphabet soup of uh, different <laughs> modalities or specialized <laughs> specializations um, or what you specialize in or techniques. Can you both, you know, shed maybe just a little bit of light on how they can read this and be like, mm-hmm. oh, yes, like this is probably what I should. This, this is the person <laughs> I should probably reach out to right now. The alphabet soup can definitely mm-hmm. be confusing. <laughs> um, so so here's what I want to tell you. Just like how, you know, there's like cardiologists and dermatologists and neurosurgeons. And we have specialties within the therapy field too. And so one thing that might make it easier for you to narrow down your search for a therapist is to think about what you would want your therapist to specialize in. If you are struggling with substance use, you want to find somebody that specializes in substance use. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, there are therapists that are certified in working with eating disorders. This We can specialize in things like anxiety, family issues. There are therapists that specialize in working with families that specialize in working with couples. <clears throat> There's religious-based um, clinicians as well. I consider myself to be a trauma specialist. I have sought out, that's why there's the alphabet soup behind my name, is because I have sought out extra training above and beyond what I got Mm -hmm. in graduate school in trauma work. And now, even further than that, compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And Mm -hmm. it's okay for you to do some research. We should be searchable in some way online and see what your clinician specializes in. If you're going to them for anxiety, but they specialize in working with couples, it's not going to be a good fit. No, absolutely. And also I would like to say working in the community mental health has definitely given me that background that sometimes you can't pick and choose. It's just unfortunately, or, you know, not unfortunately, but we just don't have the resources or or, yeah, unfortunately, you know, we don't have the resources to accommodate everyone to like this person that they like and, and, you know, the gender and the the ethnicity and the specialization and all of those things, like we just can't make it work. So at the bare minimum, do you feel safe with them? You know, and and yes, there's definitely going to be some time where it might take for you to feel safe with them. Um, it, it might be difficult at first, depending, you know, on just your ability to trust someone or just overall like establishing a relationship with a stranger, like they're a stranger at the beginning, right? So it might take some time, but over time, if you feel like you don't feel safe with them, like you're kind of feeling like you have to defend yourself maybe like they're just not understanding you and and your culture and maybe you're still feeling like you have to guard yourself, uh, monitor yourself. I think it's maybe a cue to at the very least have a conversation with your therapist about it, but then also maybe finding someone else that's a better fit as well. 
but definitely thinking about all these things as you're going through the therapeutic relationship. So to kind of pivot on that point, how do you know if your therapist is right for you, especially in terms of, you know, as it relates to your identity, what are some signs that it's working, that therapy is working? Hmm. (laughs) Overall, you should be feeling better. Yeah. I guess with that question, it was kind of like a hmm for me because it's such a spectrum. And sometimes what might be better for one person, it's not better for another. And sometimes it takes a long time to even see results. Well, I would say there have been a lot of studies done over the years on why does therapy work? Like what makes therapy successful? And what every single one of those studies has found is that it really doesn't matter how long your counselor has been in practice. It doesn't matter if they have a master's or a doctorate degree. Honestly, it doesn't even matter what kind of trainings they have. The most important thing like the the single biggest predictor of whether or not therapy is going to be successful for somebody is the relationship between the therapist and the client. It's the therapeutic relationship. And so if you don't feel comfortable with your therapist, therapy is not going to work. If you feel judged, if you don't feel comfortable opening up to them, it's just not going to work. And it doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. It just means that it's not the right fit. And so it's okay for you to be honest with yourself. I always say to to the folks that I work with in, in the first session, when we do the intake, so your first session should be an intake. Your first session should be your therapist saying things to you like, well, what brings you to therapy? What's been going on? Tell me a little bit about your substance use. Tell me about, uh, are you in a romantic relationship? You know, what's your home life like? Tell me a little bit about growing up. Do you have any siblings? Who's part of your support system? You know, all those kinds of things. And so the intake can feel a little weird, but I always tell clients before we get started, I want you to have in the back of your mind that you should be assessing me. And you should be asking yourself, does this feel comfortable for me? Do I want to continue talking to Natasha? And if the answer to that question is no, that's okay. I know lots of therapists and I can help you get connected to somebody that feels like a better fit for you. It may be a a little difficult to assess that in the intake. So it may take a few sessions and that's okay. But overall, you should be tracking towards feeling better. I think another thing that we sometimes will put out there with therapy is that therapists have all the answers. Man, I wish I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would have written a book and I'd be richer than Bezos right now. Um, <laughs> I don't have all the answers. What I do is I ask you the questions <laughs> to help you get to your answers. And so, you know, I had a wonderful therapist that I was seeing a few years ago, went to her because I wanted to work on my self-confidence and my self-esteem. I can't tell you what session number that happened in. 
right? It was a gradual process. It took time, but overall I was feeling more confident and I felt my self-esteem getting better. So I couldn't tell you, you know, I think it was like the seventh time that I went in to see her that, you know, I had this epiphany. That's not how it happened. It was over time with her kind of challenging some of the long held negative views that I had about myself and, you know, giving me some exercises to work on. That's a big thing. If you're therapist gives you stuff to work on in between sessions, you should probably be doing it. Remember, you spend a lot more time outside of therapy than you do in therapy. Mm -hmm. And so it's important that if you're learning something like I do a lot of grounding exercises with my clients because a lot of the folks on my caseload struggle with anxiety. So if you and I are practicing grounding exercises in session, but you tell me that you have panic attacks when you have to go to Walmart, but you're not practicing your grounding exercises before you go into Walmart, it's not going to work. It's not going to help. So overall, you should be tracking towards feeling better. You should never feel like your therapist is judging you ever. And it should feel like the two of you are in it together. I mean, one of my like I, the reason that I love what I do is because I get to celebrate my client successes with them. You know, my client who in the middle of a really bad depressive episode, she's like, I took three showers this week. And I'm like, yes, that is amazing. You know, it, it should feel like they're on your side. Now, sometimes I do have to challenge clients. Mm-hmm. Um And that should be part of the relationship too. So if I have somebody coming to me and saying, I need to work on my relationship, you know, my marriage is just not very healthy. And I think there's probably some things I can be doing better. I may say something like, okay, well, tell me what happened in the last argument that happened between you and your partner. Uh, And I may hear, well, you know, I told them how stupid they were and how they've really been ruining my life since they came into my universe. Um, I may say something like, well... If somebody told me that, I don't think that I would be very receptive to trying to build a stronger relationship with them, you know? So your therapist, now I try to call out my clients in like a more gentle way. Some some therapists are like more blunt than I am, um, but sometimes they may need to call you out on stuff. And so that should be part of the therapeutic relationship too. Sometimes you do need to be challenged. So those right. are my thoughts. One of the things that I I heard you talking about too and bringing up was I'd like the client maybe having goals already when they're coming in to talk about with their therapist. Would you say that that also helps in the process of identifying if a therapist is a good fit for you? For sure. Yeah. Like we, you know, like Mary and I talked about looking at those specializations is big. I always ask clients in that first session, let's identify two goals. What are some things that you want to work on that you want to use this time for? A different way of framing it if you're not sure, because a lot of times I get a deer in headlights look when I ask that question is, how will you know this is working? What will be different for you? And sometimes that's an easier way to conceptualize it. Now, you don't have to have all the answers when you go in and it's okay if you don't, because through the process of the intake, I hopefully will have learned something. And if I get that deer in headlights look, I'll say, well, based on everything that you shared with me, it sounds like one of the things that we may need to work on is... Uh, you know, your anxiety and social situations. That sounds like something that's really negatively impacting your life. Does that sound like a fair use of our time together? Or I'm hearing some unresolved grief. 
I I know that this person passed away uh, 10 years ago, but you, you got really choked up when you were talking about them. And I suspect there's probably some grief work to be done. Does that sound fair to you? And it, you, you should be making those goals with your therapist, mm-hmm. right? Because these are your goals. And every so often, your therapist should be checking in with you. You know, hey, uh, Libba, when you first came in, we said that we were going to be working on your anxiety. You know, now we're, I don't know, let's say, I like to check in every four weeks. Now we're a month into sessions together. Has that improved? As you feel about the same, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Where are you at? Do we maybe need to change that goal out for another one? And that should always be a collaborative process. Your therapist can't own your goals, right? Um, That should always come back to what you want to work on. So great question. Yeah, I, I think it's really big about that collaborative work. It shouldn't feel like someone's telling you what to do or, you know, also someone's kind of just letting you just vent and sometimes you need that and also we want to be working collaboratively towards something which is your goals essentially and and like Natasha said and I'll I'll also stress this you don't have to have the goals all figured out sometimes it's really hard especially after big traumatic experiences or you know some some identity crises like it might be really challenging to figure out what is it that you want what is it that you know, what it would look like to feel better, what it, especially maybe also if you've never felt better and this is just your first step, at, you know, your first go at trying therapy. But that's something to also bring up. I really, I, and I think Natasha, you mentioned this, however much you put in is what you're getting out. Mm-hmm. So if you're not doing the work yourself, that's just what you're going to get out. Pretty much not much. But if you're, you're there, you're being open and vulnerable and honest to the extent that it's possible for you, you know, that's why we don't compare clients. Like mm-hmm. it's just to the extent that it's possible for you, you're showing up as your authentic self. And I think that that at least is a good start. And you should also feel open to sharing with your therapist when something doesn't work. You know, mm-hmm. last time we talked about that grounding thing and I I decided to try it before I went into Walmart and I still had yeah. a panic attack. So what's that about, right? It's okay for you to bring mm-hmm. that back. And that's something that we absolutely need to process through. Okay, so yeah. that doesn't sound like it was the coping skill for you or maybe we jumped way too fast. Maybe we need to do some stuff in between, you know, taking that trip to Walmart and we can readjust as we go, but you should feel comfortable bringing that to your therapist. You shouldn't be scared or hesitant to say, um, you know, I tried this thing and it didn't work for me. That's, that's not what it should be. And sometimes that's difficult because, you know, I I know like for some Latin cultures, um, counselors or just licensed professionals can be Mm -hmm. seen as like doctor. Like I know Mm -hmm. that a client before a Hispanic client before has called me like doctor, like I'm not a doctor, just a therapy intern. Um, but, not but just. Sometimes, well, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, sometimes we need to do that psychoeducation. Like we're not doctors and also we're just not the expert in your life. So we are going to want feedback and we are going to want to know what's going on for you. What's this process like for you? You know, are you feeling okay with with what we're doing? Are you not? Are you noticing that maybe this is just going too fast? Do we need to slow it down? Or are we going too slow? And do we need to pick it back up? All of these things, we only see you for I mean, I see my clients 
on a weekly basis for one hour, but that's just one hour out of X amount of hours a week. So we're counting on you to really let us know what's going on as the client. And then also, this is how you know if your counselor is a safe space for you. Mm -hmm. Are they giving space and, and broaching the conversation so you do feel comfortable enough to at least expand a little bit more on what the process is like for you or you may be feeling like you can't do that to them. You both have brought up a lot of really great points hearing about one that the pace for the client depending on what they're working on can absolutely change especially like Mary what you were talking about if there's a traumatic event things are probably going to be reprioritized. There might be maybe a different Mm -hmm. case set for them. And then also Natasha, like you're pointing out and Mary as well, right? You see your clients once a week, maybe once every other week, maybe once a month and Mm -hmm. the exercises you provide them being just that right exercises. They're working on a muscle almost that they're building Mm -hmm. and they have to train that. So I know in a prior conversation, separate and removed from this one that we're having, we talked about addressing the all or nothing myth that might come along with first sessions for clients and also really honing in on, you know, how do I know how long I need to be in therapy? Could you both take some time to speak to that? That is the $8 million question. (laughs) And I'm going to give you the answer you probably don't want, which is I have no idea. It all depends. It very much depends on what's going on with your situation. I I had a client uh, last year who all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, developed this fear of public speaking. The problem is, is that their job required them to do a lot of presentations. And so we processed through that, but it only took us a few sessions. But because I specialize in trauma, most folks have a lot of stuff that we need to work through. And it's probably going to take us more than four sessions to process Mm -hmm. through all of that longstanding trauma. And so it really depends. And going back to those barriers to care, unfortunately, sometimes your your insurance company will dictate to you, okay, fine, you can go to therapy, you get 12 sessions. Mm -hmm. And you may not be able to resolve, you know, childhood trauma compounded by trauma in adulthood in 12 sessions. And so that absolutely is a possibility. And unfortunately, that is something that I do see. So Mm -hmm. it's a very individual answer. Here's the other thing too. As life happens, things continue to happen. Um, Right right now I'm on my third therapist, not because any of the previous two therapists, anything was wrong with them, but uh, the therapist that I'm seeing now specializes in something different than the other two people that I had seen. I'm also at a different place in my life and I'm not working through the same issues that I was working through uh, back when I started seeing the first therapist. I don't remember what year that was. And so that's another thing that can happen is you Mm -hmm. may see a therapist for a while who specializes in trauma and you kudos to you, you help you resolve that trauma. You get to a more healed place. You're living a higher quality of life. And then something happens. Uh, Maybe there's a loss. And so you find somebody that specializes in grief and you may work with that grief counselor for a little bit and that's okay. That's part of the process also. But unfortunately I can't tell you how long you need to be in therapy. It very much depends on um, your situation and how much work you're doing outside of therapy too. Yeah. And, And then I think also with that, like 
being in therapy is not something that you do. You get a, you get, you know, a result and then you're done. It, it's really just feeling supported and, and, and help having someone to help you go through things. Just like you talked about, we're always, life is always going to be happening. So it doesn't necessarily have to be because there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. It's just, you know, maybe you're needing a little bit more support this year because you're a new parent and you're finding yourself having to work and juggle being a new parent. And not that you're, you know, experiencing extreme depressive symptoms, but maybe you just need that extra support. Or so, because you're going through a global pandemic for yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> two, yeah. two plus years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you're not happy in your job and you're trying to figure out if you need to leave and get another mm-hmm. job. Um, career counseling. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's like so many things I've had folks Mm -hmm. come to me because for a variety of reasons, the longest lasting friendship in their lives had come to an end and Mm -hmm. they were struggling with that in a way they'd never struggled with a relate romantic relationship coming to an end. It's an Mm -hmm. absolutely valid reason to go to therapy. The holidays are coming up. It's a huge trigger for a lot of people. There's, don't get me started on the Hallmark commercials. Um, (laughs) The holidays are not happy for a lot of people. And if the holidays Mm -hmm. are not a happy time for you, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. The holidays Mm -hmm. can be triggering for any number of reasons. Sometimes we have families that are toxic and spending time with them is traumatic. Sometimes we've lost somebody and the holidays are a very visceral reminder that that person is not here. And, you know, Thanksgiving fundamentally feels different because grandma's not there to make, you know, that amazing dish that grandma made every year. There's the financial implications. As we mentioned Mm -hmm. already, the economy is not so great right now. And you maybe want to provide this amazing holiday experience for your kids, but you can't afford to because you're struggling to keep food on the table right now. It's an additional stressor. And so those are all incredibly valid reasons to go to therapy and be processing through this, uh, this stuff with somebody. I'd like to open up the floor a little bit. I We've dropped resources throughout this podcast. <laughs> Are there any additional resources that you would like to put out there for anyone listening that they can take advantage of to help with or address or educate any number of these topics that we've covered? So I have a couple that come to mind. If therapy feels a little bit intimidating or you're just not quite quite ready to go there, there's support groups. Mm-hmm. And it can be incredibly helpful to connect to other people that have something very similar. Uh, NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, they have a website. Uh, pretty sure it's NAMI.org. And if you go on to NAMI.org, first of all, they have great educational videos on anxiety and depression and things like that. But also they have support groups, peer support space, Uh, Here in Orlando is absolutely fantastic. They provide free support groups to the community, some of which meet online. And so even if you're not in Orlando, you can take advantage of some of those offerings. So peer support space, if you you haven't checked them out, if you're not familiar with them, I would really strongly encourage you to check them out. The Mental Health Association of uh, Central Florida, They also offer support groups and places where you can connect to people, positive behavioral solutions, offers free support groups. And so 
maybe support groups is a place for you to get connected to other folks. So maybe check out a support group as a resource. And if you, if some of this seems to be resonating with you and you're thinking like, I don't know, maybe I'm there. I would also encourage you to look into your ACEs, which is your adverse childhood experiences score. It is readily available online. It is 10 questions. It assesses for 10 possible areas of trauma, abuse, or neglect that you might have experienced before the age of 18. And what we know is that the higher your ACEs score is, the likelier it is that you are going to be negatively impacted later on down in life, including with your mental health. And so if you're kind of on the fence and you're not sure and you take your ACEs and you have like an eight, then yes, you need to be in therapy. You know, it doesn't mean that that determines your entire life or that you're some kind of horrible person it means there's a significant amount of trauma there. And it would most likely be beneficial for you to be talking through that with a professional. So those are the the ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, and, and I'll I'll take a moment to I guess plug in kind of the stuff that I'm doing here at VSC at VSC. We have a lot of amazing support groups. We have a BIPOC. I don't know if it's just if it is open for all genders. I want to say it might also just be for women. Are you talking about our Black and African American Women's Healing Group? Yes, it's for women only then, right? And it's offered half half through the year, so they're not on right now. Um, but they will be starting soon. Right. It's it's one of our closed therapy groups. Mm-hmm. We also have the Rainbow Resilience Support Group. We have our Spanish speaking support group. We're starting other groups coming for the next year. And then for students, I, I think a big, big resource that I always like to give back to is that your your university should have a CAPS office you know, so, so reaching out if you're a student to your office, they have free counseling services. And then if you need a specializations, they also will refer you out to community mental health offices in the area that might help, you know, whatever you're, you might be needing. So, and I think if in doubt, just reaching out to any community mental health service, VSC will do a really great job at just providing you like what other resources are around. And I love that Natasha's bringing up the support group because it can definitely be a really good opening into what the supporting space can look like. And also workshops. I think workshops are amazing. Actually, Natasha, you're talking about surviving the holidays. That is the name of our um, workshop that some of the ladies did a couple of weeks ago. And I will be hosting December 10th for Spanish speaking. So surviving the holidays. Yeah, and I think workshops are just very short, you know, maybe three, four hour things that you can do to get more information on a topic and and get connected to an agency. And on our website, we always give more information about what we have going on. And I think that can be also just a small introduction, no commitment needed to starting out therapy or venturing on what mental health um, help can look like. Yeah, VSC, I I would love to add into that plug because I do community engagement, right? So I go out in the community and I talk to folks about the resources that we provide and we do provide a lot. Um, If you're in the Central Florida area um, and you are looking for anything like group therapy, individualized therapy, crisis counseling, we provide that free and confidential service. And in addition to the groups that Mary cited, we've got groups like the Passion Flower Project. So if you want to utilize gardening, 
as, you know, a metaphor for healing. We do that on site at our facility off of Michigan Street. We've got sexual trauma processing groups as well. We recently just finished up a, uh, a yoga group healing through movement that one of the yoga studios down the road was so generous to donate their space for. So I'm glad that we're highlighting these free resources. And thank you both for, for providing a list for folks who may not be in Central Florida, ways that mm-hmm. they can tap into mm-hmm. resources available to them. And wherever yeah. you are, there's probably some kind of community mm-hmm. mental health. And so if mm-hmm. you don't know where to start, start there. Mm-hmm. Start there. They can tap you into other places in the community. And my big takeaway message would be, I promise you, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Somebody else may not have experienced the exact same thing as you, but they have experienced something similar and you can find that connection in a support group and you can find support with somebody professional who I love what I do. I consider it a privilege to be able to sit with my clients and witness their narratives and really be a part of their healing. And I hope that counselors feel the same way, right? That's why we do what we do. And I promise you, you're not a burden. I promise you that you're you're not some kind of terrible person for making me listen to your story. You're not making me do anything. I mean, this is literally, I'm, I'm very lucky because I wake up every day and I'm never reluctant to see my clients, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I wonder how they're doing. You know, they had a job interview or they were going to be practicing this thing. And I'm excited to check in and see how it went. I get to hear about proposals before they happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's such a joy for me to be able to be a part of my clients' lives. And so mm-hmm. I promise you, you're not a burden. We are here. We want to listen. We want to help. We want to sit with you through the pain. You don't have to bear it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I agree. I, I feel very honored to to be able to do this work, to sit in the office, to to hear, you know, all the things that, that my clients confide in me. And, and, and I think that we really take it seriously. And we really want to be there and show up. So, so there's absolutely no shame in, in utilizing a resource and someone who has went to school and, and chosen the profession. <laughs> yeah. um, it took us a lot of time to get here. Believe me, we want you to come see us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both again for uh, sitting down and for talking participating on this podcast I, I I really I think we hit a lot of really great points and it was so good to hear from you both thank you again for the opportunity this was great yeah yeah absolutely I think it's great you know being able to give some psychoeducation also personal experience and show that us counselors we're people too and mm-hmm. and we understand and maybe not fully but we definitely sympathize and are here well, uh, to everyone listening, thank you so much for uh, for tuning in and listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. Uh, as a reminder, the VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And everyone listening, as it was well put earlier, healing is not linear and you are not alone. <laughs>